Let's bow our heads and pray together. Almighty God, as we gather this morning, we ask that we may understand where we fit into your purposes. As we learn from Scripture what those purposes are and how to praise you for them, may we find encouragement to know our place within the glory of what you intend for all the universe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please sit. And let me wish you a happy All Saints Day. Not a thing that you hear very often, really, but I suspect that we're going to hear it more and more often. Because, of course, as you know, Halloween is getting bigger and bigger. Well, I'm not sure how much we're going to be able to do about that because you can sell costumes for Halloween. You can't really sell many costumes for All Saints. I suppose you could. You could make a decree that next, week, next year you must all turn up in halos. But um, what we can do is to big up All Saints. And I suspect that we're going to have to because it's going to be one of those marking divider lines that makes it clear that there is indeed a difference between the church and the world. We're going to be looking at Ephesians. Please find it. Uh, it's uh, the page following 1172. <coughs> but I'm actually going to begin... Um, somewhere else. You needn't uh, chase this, you'll probably believe me if I quote something to you. It's from Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament and from chapter 32, moving very much to the end of that book. And Moses is singing a song about uh, what God has done. He's kind of bringing all things together, the whole purposes of God as they've been described in Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And he sings this, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided up all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. There was no false modesty in ancient times. If you were the boss, you got to choose the best bits. And so Moses has this picture God saying to all the nations, you go over there, Uh, you can have that area, you go over here. Ah, Jacob, Israel, you are going to stay by me. You're going to be my people forever. And that is the proud memory that's going on for St. Paul in writing verse 11 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. In him we were also chosen. It's only a very small word, chosen. And yet, uh, it's a very important word. He is not here speaking of everybody when he says we. That would make no sense of the you that is coming along in verse 13. He means we, the Jews. It is the ancient destiny, the predestiny, of the Jewish people to be God's own people, his portion from all the peoples, 
the best bit, if you like. And the God who chose them in the beginning is able to bring his will to pass for them. It is from among us, the Jews, says St. Paul in verse 12, that the first people came who hoped in Christ. And that is no accident. Rather, it's a precise fulfillment of all the purposes expressed in that first choosing. When we Jews placed our hope in Christ, then God's glory shone brightly, and the fulfilling of his purposes in us was for the praise of his glory. Now, as for you Gentiles, verse 13, it's a different story. You weren't included at the beginning. You were among those other peoples, stuck off somewhere else. But now you got to be included in all of this. You were included in Christ when you, were, when you heard the word of truth. Don't go around thinking that you, Gentiles, were a sort of accident or afterthought. No, you were drawn into this inheritance when you heard the word of truth that first told you how bad things were, and then told you God had done what was necessary to save you, the gospel of salvation. Having believed, the Gentiles were sealed, according to verse 13, with the seal of the Holy Spirit. God marked the Gentiles as his possession. And that Holy Spirit is also a deposit, paid out now, but against the inheritance to come when God's people are fully and finally redeemed. We've got a part now, but a day of final redemption will come when we have all of God's glory. Now, this is language of accountancy, possession, inheritance, redemption. Paul is bending all his language to establish this one point, that God looks on his people, the ancient ones and the ones now included, and thinks, mine. It's not even expressed from the point of view of the people. Our perception goes up and down. Paul wants to make it clear that independently of those ups and downs, God from ancient times has chosen a people for himself, drawn others into that people, marked them for his own, and anticipated the day when they will be his as they dwell with him. And all the universe is going to be gobsmacked in stunned praise for what he has done. And all of that matters because as we go into the next verses, which are probably more famous, we need to bear in mind what Paul is up to. He is establishing how things look from God's perspective. It's about us, yes, and it's for our encouragement. But he's doing it from God's point of view. It's as though he wants to see us, not as those who are um, uh, desperately trying to make our way against the stream, but rather as God in charge of the current has us as his boats on it. And the important thing is that it is God in charge of the current. This is a passage that's chosen for today in the Church of England because it's All Saints Day. And there in verse 15 is that word for the first time, saints. It does just mean uh, the holy ones, and it's the standard word in the New Testament 
for all of God's people. Those who are made holy, not in the sense, uh, though this sometimes carries it as well, that we're particularly pure and good, but rather that we have been set aside, rather in the way that the holy things uh, were set aside in the ancient temple. We are the people set aside for God. Now, we'll see in a moment that the, the connection, it's, it's not just that someone went through and said, oh, it's All Saints Day, we better find a passage that has the word in it. But it'll do to start with. <coughs> First, verse 15, he gives thanks for their faith and their love. Whenever he prays, he, he remembers them, verse 16. And then in verse 17, we come to the meat of the matter. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you, give you what you need. What do you need? You need the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you'll understand everything? No. So that you know him better? That's why. But what does that mean? Does it mean just to be closer to him? No, it doesn't. Based on what he says later in the letter, what it means at this point is you need the Spirit, folks, uh, to confirm to you the ways in which God is at work to bring about his purposes on the way to final redemption. And you need the Spirit because it is not obvious how God is fulfilling his purposes. So, in verse 18, we get this precise emphasis. Pray also the highs of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know what? Well, we've had faith and love, but now we've got the third member of the triad and we get hope. That we should know the hope to which he has called you. It's not an individual thing at this point. Audrey, you can have hope. John, you can have hope. But it's a corporate thing. Follow, follow the, the, the precise words he used. I pray also the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now that's, that's Paul for you. You know, there's lots of words piled up with a few sort of prepositions and pronouns thrown in and you think you know what it means. And I bet you thought, as I did when I first read it, oh, that means that as God's saints we have a rich inheritance. But it doesn't mean that. It actually means what it says it means. We, the saints, are God's inheritance. And we constitute for him tremendous riches. See, what we would expect, if you're writing about God or I were writing about God, what we would say is, us, poor and miserable, God, great and glorious. That's not what it says. What it says is, he is great and he, from his greatness, looks on you and me as his riches. Now, that blows my mind. And he does so because we will one day be shown for what we are, his inheritance. See, that's why I quoted from Deuteronomy at the beginning. What we are and will be is the outflowing in history and at the end of history of all that he did in Deuteronomy 32 when he chose Jacob as his portion among the peoples of the world. So let's, let's pause for a moment. According to those who are far away from all of this, what is time up to? 
Well, some politicians want to tell us that life is getting better and better. That tends to be those who are in government. And we've made great advances. Others want to tell us that society is hopelessly broken. That tends to be those not in government. And they will do something about it. But, of course, both produce in us a cynicism because we know that neither is quite true. We live in a world that's massively better off, of course it is, in our choices than we were 50 years ago. And yet we now know that the seas are rising, the whole world is changing, and we evidently lack the corporate will to change things for the better. Some are optimists, some are pessimists, but really nobody has much of a sense of the truth of where it's all headed. Most of the time, the world reckons that it just carries on. And here comes Paul, declaring that the secret of time is open to those who follow Jesus. Before time, God made a choice. In history, he brings that choice to effect through his people and most of all through his son. And that history will one day come to a culminating moment as history itself is rolled up, God's people are finally redeemed in full, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed as the waters cover the sea. The world believes in muddling along, but we are those who follow the one who is the Lord of time. Through his own spirit, we've wisdom to understand his revealing of these things, and we're caught up in these things because we are that people. So let's go on. Back to our text and to verse 19. For us who believe... God gives his power, and that incomparably great power is the same as the power that raised Christ and exalted Christ. <coughs> that power raised Christ, it's life from the dead. That power exalted Christ, it sat him at the Father's right hand. The angels stand or fall down in worship. The Son sits. The resurrection tells us Jesus lives forever. The ascension tells us Jesus reigns forever. Now, that would be a great set of affirmations to make in any circumstances. But consider the world of Ephesus. Read the rest of the letter sometime. Ephesus is a world of magic in which dark spirits ruled the night. Read through the book of the Acts and pick up what you can about Ephesus. It's a spooky place. Read the rest of this letter and remember the need for the armor of God against the devil and his flaming arrows. For our struggle, says St. Paul, is against powers and principalities. So how vital it is that Christ has sat down. The work is done and dusted of triumphing over what, in verse 21 here, Paul calls every rule and authority, power and dominion. They loved making up titles in Ephesus for this or that spirit. But Jesus' title is above every title that can be given, according to verse 21. When we pray, and, and uh, you'll perhaps know that chapter, verse 6, and the armor of God, when we pray in accordance with all that chapter 6 has to say to us, we do not pray according to an uncertain outcome of the battle between Christ and all that opposes him. 
On the contrary, we pray in certainty because the outcome has happened. Christ is seated. So let's pause again. What is our world like? Our highest paid journalists are those who write the horoscopes. Some of us will have noted on the streets last night the young kids with their costumes. It's probably not too serious. But then also there are the older teens in their party costumes going out for some serious partying. And I would reckon that more damage comes on Halloween from Ouija boards and weird stuff than any other time of year as teenagers and others play around with powers they know not of. We as a church get more calls than we used to from people who know nothing of God or Jesus but want us to deal with something funny going on in our house. 2,000 years and we're still stuck in Ephesus. And that's the other reason why this passage is appropriate for All Saints Day, the day that follows the world's celebration of the spirits. But Jesus is not only Lord over time, he's Lord over death. The world believes in spirits. It is astonishing what the world does believe in rather than what it doesn't. The world believes not in God and will often triumphantly say, well, we don't believe in that. But how astonishing how many people do believe in something out there. But we follow the Lord over death, who is raised and seated and under whose feet God has placed all things. Paul has prayed then in this prayer for wisdom and for power. Now, these are things the world wants. And it might be possible to read this passage as one of the saints of God and think, oh, great. This is the kind of blank spiritual check. Wisdom to understand anything. Power to do anything. I could do with that. Life's tough right now, so I'll have some of that. Yet not so. This is wisdom to understand what God has been about since the book of Genesis, bringing a people to himself. This is power to achieve those things that are needful as God brings that people to himself and heads for that day when his people will be with him in glory. It is power to achieve those other things Paul cares about in Ephesians. I can't achieve love, humility, spiritual renewal, service, purity of relationships, and the spiritual battles of chapter 6, unless God pumps through me a power far mightier than I can manage. Now, that may be disappointing to you. Oh, oh, I see it's only spiritual wisdom. It's only spiritual power. Well, if that is disappointing to you, then you haven't understood what God counts as mattering. And that, finally, for me, is the challenge of this passage. It's the call to see all this again from the point of view of God. If life is tough for you right now, and if it isn't, it will be at some point, then it is so easy to grasp at any straw. You see words like wisdom and power in a Bible passage, you say, oh, yes, good. Uh, that means that I can try just a little bit harder to manage this project of being a Christian. But that's not what Paul is saying. 
This passage is about what God has done, is doing, and will do to bring to pass his purposes for his people, purposes that will astonish the universe. And so my security as a follower of Jesus is in the power of God to do what he has said he will do all along. It is not my confidence in myself that with a bit more effort, I can actually overcome whatever life is throwing at me right now. To borrow another image from these days, this is not power to light up the sky like fireworks. Rather, God gives us wisdom and power to live in life, tough as it is, and still to manage humility and perseverance and joy and singing and service and love and, yes, victory over the flaming arrows of the evil one. All those things are in this letter. When the next edition of our church uh, newsletter, 360, emerges in the next couple of weeks, you'll see that I've been challenged by this title of the uh, series of uh, events and this period heading our way next year in Norwich and across the country, Passion for Life. Not often you get passion and accounting in one sermon, but here we go. Uh, and I've been... I, I found that title difficult... And yet in the end I've decided it's a good title. Because it's not passion as the world understands it. But there is a real passion here in Paul's letter. For a life lived along the grain of what God has been up to from all eternity. For his church which is Christ's body. If collectively and by the power of God's spirit we lived a life of stunning purity profound humility, loving service, truthful proclamation, thankful renewal, powerful prayer, and gentle relationships. If we lived that kind of passionate life, would not the world be amazed? Let's pray. from later in this letter. God's intention was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord God, each one of us faces uh, the regular trials of life in one way or another. And we are alongside many others who do the same. And yet you have opened our eyes by your Spirit to this mystery of what you have done in the past, are doing right now, and will do in the future to draw a people for yourself into your glory. Give us confidence, not in our own capacity, 
which may be greater or may be less, to triumph over life's challenges. But a confidence that knows, however life's challenges work out, the important things are being achieved within your body on earth, and you are forming a people for your praise. As we gather just to be here this morning when we could have done other things on a grey day. May we be thankful for those amongst whom you've placed us in your church. And may we have renewed confidence that it is your purposes that have triumphed in Christ and will triumph in our redemption. We ask it not for our sake, but for the sole glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, under whose feet all things are placed, and for whom all that is exists. Amen.